try to have these difficult conversations with our competitors, but actually it's essential as we're thinking about the degree to which AI has become a major element of this overall military competition. Certainly our, our potential adversaries also fear, fear our intentions and capabilities, and there can be mutual anxiety that can drive arms racing scenarios when there is a fear of disadvantage or fear of... of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, uh, the views expressed here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, our pets, uh, really maybe not even ours uh, uh, three weeks from now. And we're going to try to do this uh, totally remotely uh, and uh, uh, without uh, undue references to COVID-19, because uh, I feel like we've all gotten enough news in our podcast feed on COVID-19 to uh, last us for the rest of the week. Uh, so today I'm going to interview Elsa Kanya, who's an adjunct senior fellow at Technology and National Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, Elsa, welcome. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Calling in from Cambridge, where we are all trying to stay healthy and practicing social distancing. Yes, well, there's nothing more distant than everybody on a separate uh, uh, Skype channel to uh, record the podcast. Uh, uh, so good to have you. Uh, you. You're returning. You've been on the program at least once, maybe twice before. Uh, yes, glad to be back. Joining us for the news roundup, Maury Schenk, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, calling in from London. Uh, Mark McCarthy, adjunct professor and senior fellow at Georgetown University. Uh, Nick Weaver, senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. And I'm Stuart Baker, right, uh, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, so for our uh, stories today, I thought one of the, the more interesting ones was a Wall Street Journal article by Sean Lee that says uh, um, Chinese companies have found a niche selling what uh, are called uh, delicately content moderation tools, in other words, censorship tools, um, it, mostly I, I get a sense as a service to other countries, other uh, uh, platforms. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, how big a deal is this? Well, this stuff is moving fast. Um, it's Tencent, who runs WeChat, and Alibaba, who runs Alipay, who are some of the big vendors. And there's not a big legal issue here. Of course, First Amendment issues, if you try to use it in the U.S. and similar issues elsewhere. But I think the practical issues are really interesting. I'm um, working with, uh, helping run a startup that uses NLP extensively. And this stuff is really moving fast. Since 2017, when Google came out with Transformer and then Bert in 2018, natural language processing is getting a lot better at recognizing stuff. And I think we're seeing that here. The second point I would make is it's known with AI that there's what's called a precision recall trade-off. So the two kinds of errors are false negatives and false positives. And to do good censorship, minimize your false negatives, you got to have a lot of false positives. So good censorship is going to mean that a lot of speech that's suppressed with AI, a lot of legitimate speech will be suppressed too. And my final sort of practical point is 
This is the wet dream of surveillance capitalism. This is how the Chinese maintain control uh, going into the future. Well, and if they if people don't buy it from the Chinese, they can buy it from uh, uh, U.S. companies, which also have a content moderation problem. They have just different standards about what they quote unquote moderate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Chinese are, are tuning theirs more for political speech. And the people in the U.S. who sell it will say that's not what they do. And it does help to tune your software to do that. But you're right. U.S. companies would be able to do this as well. Mark, you, you're, you're a, a student of content moderation. Uh, uh, does this surprise you that uh, uh, China's doing so well in this market? Not at all. Although, so far at least, apparently, the customers are, are mostly Chinese companies. They're, they're trying to sell it to other countries around the world. But, but it's the kind of thing that, in principle, would be useful even in Europe, you know, where the, the EU directive on terrorist content uh, creates uh, an interest in content moderation algorithms to detect the material before companies are told to take it down by authorities. The big U.S. platforms don't need the Chinese technology, but the, the smaller platforms might, might find it useful. Uh, and, and more broadly, there's a market for this for companies that are simply seeking to provide a platform with, with a safe user experience. They, they might not want terrorist content or pornography or spam making their systems unpleasant places to be. Uh, so I, I do think it's got a, it's got a, an attraction for those companies, especially if it comes bundled with cloud computing services, which apparently it is. Uh, and the competitors there are Microsoft and Amazon, who also sell cloud computing services with bundled content moderation software. So I, I think there's nothing intrinsically nefarious about this business. It really does depend on how these systems are tuned and what they're tuned for. Well, if you were say, um, the Turkish government, uh, uh, which would you rather have your local platforms using, a, a Chinese system or a, a, a U.S. system? It seems to me you'd probably get much more reluctant uh, enthusiasm for your uh, uh, standards for what's good speech and what is not good speech uh, out of the U.S. suppliers than out of China. This is part of the larger competition between the the U.S. and China for the allegiance of of, of third countries, um, and I think we're going to see more and more of it. By the way, a, a detail on the extent of automation: uh, like the U.S. companies, the the Chinese companies realize that not everything can be automated yet. Machine language is good; it's getting better, but it's not very very sensitive to nuance and context and satire. So difficult cases, even for these companies, are being sent to human reviewers, and there, there appears to be an army of content reviewers hidden in buildings in the smaller cities of China to meet the demand for these kind of services. Yeah, well, Facebook does that too. They have just uh, uh, tens of thousands of Filipinos mainly yeah, uh, uh, do, doing kind of human review of uh, content. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's everywhere. Okay, um, the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission has now issued its report uh, into the teeth of uh, uh, everybody staying home. So maybe everybody will, will stay home and read it. Um, uh, I did spend a fair amount of time with it, and it's got entertaining uh, 
parts, uh, Peter Singer, for those of you who remember, he uh, was on this program uh, with a, a fictionalized version of uh, uh, a, a, a military strike uh, involving China uh, invading the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, and uh, uh, he starts out uh, his uh, uh, the the report with a, a uh, description of uh, the kind of world we'll live in if uh, uh, cybersecurity continues to break down. Pretty entertaining. Uh, I, I thought, and Elsa, you uh, give me your thoughts on this. What was most interesting about the commission report is just how. Uh, enthusiastic the commission has become uh, about imposing costs on the private sector. I, I looked this over and uh, it looks to me as though uh, tech li liability is imposed on final goods assemblers who don't patch known bugs. Uh, and so this means Apple, this means um, uh, Google uh, for their Android bugs, uh, uh, liability, that could be a pretty substantial penalty. And then uh, acquisition regs uh, uh, that will impose requirements on suppliers of uh, uh, equipment to the Defense Department and the rest of the US government, Sarbanes-Oxley cybersecurity assessments that are going to be mandatory, uh, a, a um, national privacy kind of GDPR bill uh, that will not uh, uh, preempt uh, the state laws, just a national minimum, uh, and then a national breach law that will preempt state laws. It just goes on and on uh, in terms of imposing obligations on the private sector. Uh, and I think maybe the time has come and the bloom is off the technology rose. We may see some of these things actually adopted. Yeah, I'd say that the report is significant, and I hope it will prove impactful when it comes to really articulating what could be characterized as something of a paradigm change in how the United States approaches cybersecurity, asking the private sector to step up, so to speak, and be subject to some of those new requirements and expectations, but also attempting to reorient the overall American posture when it comes to how we anticipate and prepare to respond to cyber threats and scenarios that are arguably terribly predictable, but for which we have failed so far to mount an appropriate response. And in particular, one thing that stood out to me was the focus on Moving beyond a lot of the very circular conversations we've seen for years about, well, how do we get to cyber deterrence? We need more offense. We need to impose costs on our adversaries. And instead of trying to turn that around and say that this notion of layered cyber deterrence is a more complex articulation of what deterrence means in a world that is so interconnected and in which we are highly capable but also uniquely vulnerable and emphasizing in particular the importance of defense and resilience as elements of our posture where we have really failed to invest and failed to prepare in the past, but in trying to create new authorities, increasing the prominence of, a of agencies in the space, uh, like CISA in particular, and even creating a new notion of a cyber state of distress and th thinking about the economic elements of response that would be necessary. And arguably, some of this focus on preparedness 
including the capacity for resilience and response, has some interesting parallels. I know we probably wouldn't discuss this, but how we think about response to a pandemic or, or any situation that involves significant disruption to our economy and society, as we could see with future cyber threats. So I hope, uh, I think the report is commendable in trying to sketch out a very ambitious agenda, including quite a few legislative proposals that I hope will gain some traction, but clearly there is so much work to be done going forward to actually realize this vision and shift away from focusing on offense, which has been the status quo of our approach for quite some time, to really putting defense and denial and this focus on resilience and continuity of our economy front and center. Yeah, I would say this is, I, I won't call it small ball, but it's medium ball. There, There's nothing here at the end of the day that is a giant step forward or transformative, but there are a lot of things that are on the edge of doable uh, that they just pile one on top of the other on top of the other on the theory that uh, what we've been doing up to now hasn't been working. They're gonna, we're going to have to have some departures, but they're they're, these are practical politicians. They're not crazy. They 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 know there's a limit to what the departures uh, that are possible are. Uh, and so you know, uh, all things considered, uh, coming from a group of people who ha have a lot of practical political uh, responsibilities even today and and savvy, uh, it's uh, about as aggressive a document as you could expect. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe they will spend as much time implementing their recommendations as they did drafting them. And if that's the case, they could get some of this legislation through. Yeah, I hope so. And I think that practicality is important because we've spent so much time admiring the problem when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber threats. And actually progressing beyond theories or doctrines to implementation of the very practical measures that will be required in a way that is feasible legislatively, I think could, I hope could be an, a critical legacy of this agenda, but it does seem to be still far too soon to say whether, whether that action will be forthcoming. So Nick, um, uh, is, is one possible measure that the uh, Cyber Command should just trojanize all the hacking tools in the world so that we actually can uh, uh, see what uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the hackers are stealing? Uh, except that probably the Russians have beat us to that strategy. This is a good story. Yes. Yeah, so this is a great story about an ongoing hacking campaign where what they were doing is distributing tools for the low-level hackers, the script kitties as we call them, that had backdoors in them so that script kitty hacks targets, if they want to uh, then take over who the script kitty took over, they just simply use their backdoor. So, hey, backdoors are good for something. Uh, I'm trying to remember the you know NSA has a uh, a rule that says uh, or a way of describing their intelligence sources as first party meaning they stole it uh, a second party meaning one of the five eyes stole it uh, third party meaning uh, another ally uh, uh, stole it uh, fourth party meaning we compromised a bad guy who stole it and stole it from him I guess this is that would make this fourth party at least uh, uh, intelligence if you uh, were riding uh, sh uh, a sort of shotgun with uh, with the hacker. 
or what you do is you take over the hackers hackers infrastructure and basically be doing fifth party collection. <laughs> Terrific. Okay. So um, speaking of NSA, uh, uh, FISA uh, authorities, some of them pretty important, did not get reauthorized when they expired yesterday. Uh, the, uh, um, the effort to come up with a compromise or kick the can all failed. Uh, the effort to come up with a compromise failed um, in large part because the president uh, said, uh, I'm being told I should veto this silly FISA bill because FISA is what was used to spy on me. Uh, that prevented the Senate from passing a House bill, uh, or at least it postponed the uh, uh, the date on which the Senate would take up the House bill. Um, the um, leadership of the of the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, is saying that he intends to take this up tomorrow, uh, or perhaps even today, um, and pass it. So, uh, unless the president decides to veto it, uh, we're probably going to get a House written bill uh, that came out of negotiations between the Judiciary and the Intelligence Committee chairs. Um, on the whole, having looked over it, it's uh, considering what a, a mess this is, uh, has been, it's not terrible. Uh, it kills the call detail program, but if you've listened to uh, if you've listened to the last uh, couple of programs, uh, even I don't think the call detail program uh, is worth spending a lot of effort trying to save. Uh, uh, it um, conforms Section two fifteen of FISA to law enforcement authorities, which is sort of plausible. Um, a, the, maybe the most controversial thing to my mind is it says you can't acquire any location information with a 215 order. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that's the, the, going to be the rule for law enforcement. So I think that uh, uh, constraining intelligence capabilities where national security is at stake um, prematurely is a bad idea. Not much. Oh, there's a bunch of Carter Page stuff. This is what uh, will be used to sell it to the president and probably to some of the Republican uh, uh, Republicans who joined it in the House. Uh, essentially, institutionalizing some of the things the court, uh, the FISA court, has already required that um, the the FISA applications should say yes. We disclose anything that would call into question the uh, case that we're making here. Uh, I, and then uh, some special limitations on investigative uh, techniques used against U.S. persons. They have to be disclosed to the court. The attorney general has to uh, approve surveillance of elected officials and candidates. Uh, none of that's particularly troublesome. Uh, it's probably a good idea, whether it's really an adequate response to the mess that we had in, in, in 16 and 17 is, is open to question. Uh, but that's that's the basic uh, uh, set of requirements, nothing, as I said, that's going to change the national security balance if this gets adopted uh, in the next 24 hours. Uh, uh, it's just unfortunate that um, uh, everybody has been so irresponsible about the need to keep it uh, in effect. Let me ask Mark, uh, uh, you talked before about how uh, the censorship uh, uh, technology might be useful. 
even in Europe, and I almost interrupted to say even, those guys have an enthusiasm for censorship that uh, uh, really is rivaled only by uh, the uh, China. And this case uh, is a great example. We think of Sweden as a pretty civil liberties friendly place, but uh, this decision is hard to square with that. Yeah, they, they do have a different balance between privacy and free expression. This case is uh, the, the Swedish uh, Data Protection Authority uh, took a case from back in 2017, and then they did an audit in 2018, and they, they found that, that Google hadn't removed a, a sufficient number of links um, involved in this case, and, and they took too much time to remove the links that they did take down. So these were right-to-be-forgotten links? These, these were right-to-be-forgotten links. Uh, someone had complained about uh, uh, some of the material on, uh, on this website, and uh, uh, Google took down some of the links, but not enough of them. And the ones it took down, it took too long to take down. So the, the audit must have found a continuing violation uh, uh, under GDPR in 2018. Now, it, without looking at the details, it's hard to know what's behind this. Google said it would it would appeal, so we'll find out some more. But but really, there was a larger issue raised here. Um, Google routinely tells the websites about a complaint, and 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 then tells them again uh, when when it removes links uh, from from search results. Um, now it makes sense for Google to tell the website about the complaint. They they want to get the website side of the story in order to make a judgment about whether the complaint is is is. It's got any merit, and and Google says that it it responds favorably to only about forty five percent of the complaints, and that the basis for telling the website that its link is being blocked is that this is the outcome of of an administrative procedure, and and the website's a party to that. Now you can say why is Google running an administrative procedure, but that's how the right to be forgotten functions. The the Swedish DPA appears to have two f- concerns with this. One is the way Google tells the complaining party that the website will be notified of the complaint. They think that might discourage complaints. Now, if if this is just about the complaint form, then some rephrasing should fix it. But but the DPA could also be concerned about the mere fact that the website is notified about the complaint. And if so, that that's a real problem. It's hard to see how Google could run any kind of fair process if it's unable to even notice and notify the alleging allegedly offending website but the second concern is that is that if you tell the website that the links are being removed that allows circumvention uh, the, the the website could then just simply republish the web page differently and the new web page would show up in the search results now that concerns a little harder to fix by rephrasing and appears to require keeping the website in the dark out of fear of circumvention. That too seems crazy since the complaining party will be notified of the outcome of the case. So that's a travesty of, of, of due process. My, my spidey sense suggests that there's a technological fix here that Google can just uh, uh, block not just the initial link but all the successor links. But, but the bigger picture is that th- this is just a kind of crazy detail uh, that needs to be addressed once you've adopted a regulation that allows privacy rights to trump the flow of previously published lawful information. Uh, stay tuned. There'll, there'll be some developments on this in the future, but it's it's a real mess. 
I don't think I'm uh, projecting too far into the future to say, um, well, Sweden didn't say you got to take it down worldwide. That's common. Now, there's been a case on that. The, the, the European Court has already ruled on that. It's it's only in Europe that the right to be forgotten is operative. Ah, okay. So that one's over. Although, you know, in a different case, Facebook was told that the, some of the you know, uh, uh, other material that it, it has taken down material had, to, had to come down had to be yeah. had to be taken down worldwide. Uh, so there's a there's a, a a conflict in the European approach to this one on terrorist content and another on privacy. Well, I, it is. Uh, I'm I'm astonished that uh, um, you know the the obvious solution here would be to say, well, why don't you uh, bring your case against the website that is publishing this, uh, uh, as opposed to the tool that people use to find it. Uh, uh, and then the, the website would be able to defend itself, and it would know exactly what's been taken down. And if you think they're evading the order, then you can punish them. Why uh, this, this insistence on having Google act as big brother's uh, bigger enforcer uh, is, um, you know, uh, while convenient, if you want to su suppress speech, uh, uh, otherwise has no either due process or policy basis. Well, the, the, the process is that they don't want to take down the information. They just want to make sure that the information isn't produced in a way that's associated with the name of the person uh, whose information it's about. So, so if I make a search, right, for exactly the same link that this w was taken down, that, that'll show up. Right. I'll get to see it. Yes, as long as you don't include the name in, the, in your search. Exactly. Right. So they don't want to remove the material. That would be, you know, getting rid of material. This is privacy protection, which means you keep the information there on the Internet, but you make it difficult for people to associate it with the name of the, of the person whose privacy is being invaded. So you, you, you learn, if you care, that there was a murder 10 years ago of a woman uh, in Sweden, uh, but you never learn that it's the guy you're about to marry. Or, or a different way, you keep the book in the library, but you delete its reference from the card catalog. <laughs> okay, sad. Um, well, here's a, here's a bit of private action uh, by uh, corporations acting more or less as governments. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, Microsoft took down a really big botnet, uh, uh, and it sounds like they, they did it with a lot of help from the government, but that they carried most of the legal burden. Yes, and this has been a strategy that they've actually started pioneering over the past few years. So uh, about Two or three years ago, they took down a botnet in basically the same way, used legal process to take over domain names and other infrastructure. And in fact, one of my colleagues who was working with Microsoft, one part of them, and had registered one of these domains, got a copy of the court order seizing his domain from the uh, by the other part of Microsoft because the domain was being used to actually track the botnet. <laughs> So if I remember right, is it Microsoft's theory, underlying theory of why they have a right to take down this botnet is that it is using Microsofty names, uh, their trademark, uh, as a way of looking like they're, these are files you should be downloading or places you should be going. They insert something that sounds like a Microsoft product. So you think, oh, yeah, that's just another Outlook tool or what have you. Um, is that the, the, the theory that they're using in all these cases? I think it's a little bit broader, but trademark alone is actually a huge tool against these bad actors. 
in other areas as well. So it's trademark enforcement by Pfizer that has largely killed the Viagra spammers. Yeah. Uh, I, I suspect that uh, one, one of my questions is uh, whether the uh, Microsoft cases basically turn on the idea that this is a gang of people who've systematically abused Microsoft's trademark and therefore all of their uh, sites should be forfeited to Microsoft, even if they don't uh, in every case reference Microsoft's trademark. Because uh, I can't think of any other reason why Microsoft gets to do this. Otherwise, it's a, uh, it's a purely governmental function. Well, we'll see. All right. Um, so uh, it, it, we we occasionally have talked about uh, Russian hackers who've been extradited to the United States over the broken, bleeding bodies of various FSB uh, 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 operatives who desperately have tried to uh, extradite them back to uh, uh, Russia uh, instead, uh, and now we're discovering why the Russians feel so strongly about this. Maury, what's this case? Well, this is a fun story. Um, we, we know that the Russians are past masters at disinformation, disinformatia as they call it, although maybe the Chinese are giving them a run for the money. There's a guy on trial in San Francisco called Yevgeny Nikulin. Um, and he, back in 2012, stole allegedly over 100 million user credentials from LinkedIn Dropbox and, and one other site, Formspring. Uh, and the allegation in the case is that he was introduced to another guy um, called Nikita Kisilitsyn by a third guy called Alexei Belan. Kisilitsyn is now a senior executive cybersecurity company, Group IB, and Belan is an FSB officer. The allegation in the, in the indictment is that the FSB would get information on people that they wanted to target from hackers in exchange for telling the hackers information about FSB procedures so that it would make it easier for the hackers to, to avoid being caught. Uh, it's a cozy little cooperation story. It's sort of like the CIA getting into bed with the mafia, which I suspect probably happened, but the Russians are better at it. Yeah, and one suspects that some money changed hands from hacker to FSB operative. Uh, um, they caught this guy in the Czech Republic, and uh, Russia spent two years trying to prevent him from being extradited to the United States. So they obviously knew that this story was going to come out as soon as he got here. Well, you know, there must be a lot of stories like this. So it's, you know, it's interesting. They, they've done a pretty good job of hiding these kind of links if it takes a case like this for it to come out. But um, I, generally, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, the there, there are a fair number of stories, many of them the result of a pretty substantial lobbying and PR campaign by U.S. chip makers uh, uh, saying that uh, the China trade fight is really going to hurt the U.S. chip industry. And uh, just because they're paying to have that said doesn't mean it isn't true. Uh, there was a, just a, a Boston Consulting Group did a big study, which is what the uh, has led to this uh, latest uh, um, 
a flurry of uh, uh, activity and stories. And I think uh, the Wall Street Journal had a, uh, an article uh, uh, last week by Asa Fitch and Bob Davis. Uh, um, Elsa has written a lot on uh, uh, where uh, the U.S. and China stand on um, uh, competing in high, in high tech. Uh, so, uh, Elsa, do you think that these fears are overblown of U.S.-China uh, trade fights costing uh, the, uh, the U.S. chip industry a big chunk of its market? I think these fears are real and accurate in the sense that many of the most successful American companies in this industry do have a high level of exposure to and dependence upon China. And certainly the China market has been very attractive over the past couple of decades and does continue to be so, albeit to a perhaps lesser degree, as some of the downsides of that dependency have become clearer and clearer. And I think the tricky dynamic will be that, on one hand, when you have uh, Chinese companies, including those that are involved in surveillance, even complicit in human rights abuses in some cases, depending upon U.S. AI chips and the accessibility of these critical semiconductors can, can enable applications in China with these national security and human rights uh, considerations, then I think there is a real rationale for some of the restrictions we've seen put into place, including the use of the entity list and designation of certain certain end users as restricted from selling or sorry, as restricted from receiving chips from US companies or suppliers. But I think the question going forward will be if the US government decides to continue on this trajectory of trying to restrict this sector, then will there be any measures to compensate for the loss in revenue to these companies that could deal below at a moment when they are so important to our overall competitiveness? And at the same time, do we how do we think more strategically about the char character of this dependence? So attempts to deny Chinese companies AI chips will only redouble efforts to promote indigenous innovation to develop alternatives and competitors in ways that, if successful, could strengthen Chinese innovation in the future. And arguably, with some of the initial restrictions against Huawei and ZTE and the fallout of that, we've seen a redoubling of this drive for independence in semiconductors, including increasing investments and ever more aggressive attempts to recruit personnel who have the requisite skill sets, experience, and expertise in, in the design and development of these very complex technologies. So I think this is a dynamic debate, and arguably the U.S. government could have put somewhat more forethought into the second-order effects of, of these decisions, including the risks of collateral damage to American companies that are, that are truly important in this industry, and perhaps a more targeted approach, such as some of the proposals for restrictions on some of the semiconductor manufacturing equipment, which is a clear bottleneck for China, or, or other measures that are carefully calibrated to think about how we, how we balance some of these competing interests in a sector that is a critical source of advantage for the time being, but definitely a more contested, more, more contested battle space, so to speak, going forward as we see Chinese companies driven to develop their own AI chips and 
attempts with mixed success to develop semiconductors that will eventually be potential alternatives to to the products of these American companies. So let's uh, we'll, we'll pick this up when we do the interview. I my guess is uh, um, it, no matter what the U.S. did, the U.S. government did, uh, China has decided that uh, it, it's going to end its dependence on the U.S. chip industry. And so the only question is whether the U.S. gets us gets the industry there before China would. I doubt that, but we'll we'll see. Um, let's uh, let's do some quick hits. Uh, um, NSO, they cannot catch a break. You, uh, it, they they claimed that uh, um, the Facebook lawsuit, the WhatsApp lawsuit against them uh, uh, was premature and that no default should have been entered against them because uh, WhatsApp hadn't actually uh, run all the traps. Uh, uh, and it turns out that's the case. Uh, WhatsApp abandoned its effort to uh, to get a default judgment against NSO. And the story uh, in CyberScoop uh, has the headline, NSO Group works to explain no-show in court for WhatsApp suit plots defense. No, I, you know, look, WhatsApp won that round fair and square and uh, pretty convincingly. Uh, whether they'll get 120 days to respond to, to the lawsuit is a different question, but uh, um, it's uh, it, it, it is a sign of media bias that uh, CyberScoop uh, uh, reaches for the most negative possible cast on this little part of the lawsuit. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, what do you think? Well, I actually did the smart thing of whenever there's lawsuit coverage, you instead just go to the Pacer docs and see. Yeah, read the read the read the read the pleadings. Yeah. And this is a high enough profile one, so it's automatically nailed on recap, so you can read it for free. Um, basically, what it comes down to is Facebook really served the hell out of NSO Group using a gazillion different methods, but the dot the I's, cross the T one failed, it turns out, wow, uh, they asked for the default judgment. And uh, to be fair, uh, look, I, I have done I have done this myself. I've used the Hague Convention. Uh, it is just totally a pain in the butt, and uh, it always takes longer and is more dicey than you would like it to be. So it's not a surprise that they messed up. It's maybe a surprise that they went for a default judgment without having all the clarity that they needed. Well, I think really what it is is the default judgment is they want to just get this over with and drag NSO group into court. Facebook did not actually want a default judgment. Facebook wants discovery. And that is why Facebook was, yeah, no problem. Uh, we'll waive the default now that you've actually showed up. And I, presumably they want to, they want to know who uh, who you've done this who you've provided these tools to what they've been used for uh, what your um, mechanisms for ensuring they're not misused are I, and because uh, they don't think those answers are going to be very satisfactory and NSO group it looks like is going to make an argument that they have a kind of derivative sovereign immunity because this is stuff that they did on behalf of sovereign governments and the sovereign governments couldn't be sued. And so it shouldn't be possible to sue their contractors for work that was done on behalf of a foreign sovereign. I, I assume that's how that goes. 
it uh, does look like that's the crux of their arg of one of their arguments for avoiding court altogether is that hey we're in the Werner von Braun school of rocketry uh, all these governments assured that it's legal under local law to fire off these rockets at people committing crimes like uh, child porn or being dissidents um, and so it's not our fault. That's when, when, where, where they come down, that's, that's the government client's uh, uh, responsibility. More litigation news, AWS versus Microsoft. Uh, the Defense Department has done a, what I think is a very smart thing. They, they asked the court if they could uh, quickly reassess and reprice the bids that uh, uh, Amazon and Microsoft have uh, made in the cloud procurement lawsuit. Uh, there were some, as there always are, there were some plausible uh, objections to what uh, was done in assessing the uh, 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 the capabilities of the two uh, uh, providers. My bet is that they don't make any difference. They're mostly valuable for litigation purposes, and taking them out of the litigation makes it a little more likely that uh, DOD can actually start doing uh, the cloud procurement that it wants. All of this leaves open the question of whether uh, there's going to be a big fight about uh, uh, President Trump uh, expressing hostility to Amazon uh, and it influencing DOD. My guess is that's a tough row to hoe. They, they may be able to hoe it because uh, uh, it's for sure Trump has expressed hostility. But my guess is if you're a uh, court of claims uh, judge uh, in a court that uh, most people don't even know exists, you're not going to want to say, yeah, I want to subpoena the president's records on this. I want to subpoena the secretary of defense record uh, uh, on this, uh, unless there's a very good case made. And, and uh, so this might end up uh, over by the end of the year. CISA is going to get, I, I think now, the subpoena power that we've talked about before, the ability to go in uh, once they've found a vulnerability that is associated with an IP, but they don't know anything else about the uh, uh, the machine. Uh, they can go to the ISP now. Uh, well, assuming that the Senate committee and the House committee, both of which have approved a bill to do this, uh, get their bills to the floor and passed. Uh, if they do, uh, then uh, DHS's uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency will be able to go to the ISPs and say, who's actually uh, controlling this particular uh, IP address, we need to send them an urgent uh, uh, message about their security. So that that would be good. Uh, was a recommendation of the uh, uh, Cyber Solarium uh, 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 Commission, so they might get an early win out of this. Privacy Kills, this is my uh, long-term uh, uh, series on uh, uh, dumb and uh, unexpected consequences of uh, privacy law. It turns out that uh, uh, this will be our only COVID-19 uh, reference, uh, uh, that uh, there was a researcher in Seattle who had all of these uh, um, nose uh, uh, biopsy samples uh, uh, collected as a flu study from Seattle residents over the last several months. Uh, and when COVID-19 came along, uh, the researcher said, oh, this is great. I can tell exactly when COVID-19 showed up in the Washington area. Uh, and uh, um, 
the federal government said, I'm sorry, you can't do that. You don't have consent for a review of COVID-19 infection, only for flu infection. And that's a privacy matter that uh, protects the uh, consumers, even if it means that it takes weeks to find out uh, uh, that uh, uh, COVID-19 has been circulating in the community since a particular date. Uh, uh, they, they finally withdrew that uh, uh, out of embarrassment, but uh, uh, they didn't just withdraw it out of embarrassment. The Seattle researchers got their own IRB to basically say, no, it would be unethical not to test and notify. And so they basically got around the FDA and the CDC in doing their study. And that's how we found out about community spread in Seattle yeah, a week yeah. before every place else. It's 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 sad uh, that uh, you have to go to a, a, a quasi-governmental bureaucracy and get them to say, "Oh no, uh, what was previously forbidden is now mandatory, uh, so you're free to do it." Uh, uh, it should have been uh, uh, something that sensible people could have done just because it's a good idea. All right, uh, not such a good idea. Joshua Schulte did get a hung jury in most of his case, most of the uh, counts against him. This is the uh, Vault Seven uh, uh, accused leaker of CIA tools. Uh, uh, he got convicted of oh, uh, contempt of court and lying to the FBI. Not uh, not big time items considering how much damage the Vault Seven leaks produced. Uh, he'll be in court again on this one uh, and probably on child pornography after that. Uh, uh, so he's not going to see daylight anytime soon, but uh, I'm looking for and haven't seen a real um, post-mortem on why the jury got so hung up on uh, uh, this other than the possibility that they just said, uh, we don't see a photograph of him hitting return at the time uh, 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 to send this to WikiLeaks, which is sort of sad, but uh, part of our CSI culture. Okay. Thanks, guys. This is uh, it's a great news roundup. Uh, and uh, I want to turn now, if I can, uh, uh, to our interview with Elsa Kanya. Elsa, as I said, uh, Center for New American Security, the most prolific writer on the technology uh, uh, competition between uh, the U.S. and China and its implications for national security that I've seen. Uh, Elsa, did you really write three reports in three months in this area? I write as much as I can, and I suppose I keep writing like I'm running out of time. And I was lucky over the past year that I was working also as a research fellow with the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown. So I had a chance to work with a couple of colleagues who sadly could not join us for the podcast, including Andrew Embry and Lorand Lasky on this policy brief on the question of comparative advantage and in artificial intelligence, as well as a, another quick brief on the question of how and whether we might engage with our competitors on AI safety and security. And then I guess I did have another report or article out in the course of the month looking at some of the intersections of artificial intelligence with uh, with neuroscience and biotechnology. And I'm I'm keeping writing. I'm actually working on a book at the moment as well. And we'll see if I make it through my manuscript while under quasi-quarantine for the next couple of months. Oh, embrace it. Embrace it. This is a great time to uh, uh, to start writing. Uh, you ought to be able to do a lot. Uh, so, but let me ask you uh, uh, quickly, what 
is AI so that we can uh, uh, get that out on the table and then start talking about uh, uh, the competition for AI dominance? Sure. What is AI? Well, as a political scientist in training, at times my lazy answer would be, well, AI is what states make of it from a constructivist, constructivist perspective in the sense that AI as a concept is really an umbrella that encompasses a long history and a range of techniques, essentially seeking to make machines intelligent. And much of what we're seeing today is occurring in the realm of machine learning, essentially using algorithms to learn from data, often massive amounts of data, including uh, techniques of deep learning in particular, which uh, often uses convolutional neural networks. And essentially the basic idea is drawing upon patterns and leveraging the data available, or in some cases, synthetic data to create new capabilities with a wide range of applications. And we've seen AI both progress as a field in ways that are quite exciting from more symbolic advancements, such as uh, AlphaGo beating Lisa Dole in the game of Go, which was perhaps a decade earlier than folks had initially expected AI could achieve that capability in a game to real world applications and self-driving vehicles, as well as, of course, as we heard earlier on the show, surveillance technologies that can be more precise and targeting in ways that can be quite a bit more dystopian. So AI can mean many things, but it has certainly become something that Chinese and American leaders are seeing as a critical focus of strategic competition as, the, as a technology with great potential to deliver dividends to economic development, as well as military capabilities, as we see its potential and progress continue to play out in the years and indeed decades to come. So you said that, um, if, if I heard you right, that uh, AI is kind of, that it has three basic organizational elements. Uh, you need hardware to, to, to run algorithms on. So you need hardware, you need algorithms, and you need a bunch of training data uh, to train the algorithms uh, 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 on to produce a set of um, uh well, I won't call them rules because we don't know what they are, but to produce outcomes uh, for uh, uh, making decisions, and those decisions often will be uh, completely unpredictable and beyond the capabilities of uh, uh, the uh, uh, human decision makers. Uh, thinking about this, if, that, if those are the three elements um, and we are in a competition between the U.S. and China, how are we doing on, let's start with hardware. Let's see. So indeed, the reason we wrote this report was partly in response to that question, which I've been, have been asked for a couple of years now of who is winning, who is leading, and how do we break down that question to be a little bit more concrete across these various, what we call core elements of AI capabilities. And when it comes to hardware, I'd say that the U.S. is actually in a relatively favorable uh, position in the competition, at least for the time being. We have seen American companies have an established advantage in semiconductors, such as NVIDIA's GPUs, which are still quite prominently used in machine learning. Google has de developed tensor processing units, which uh, TPUs, which are also quite successful. We've seen AMD, Intel, and other American companies join the fray on this. And 
Of course, there are fierce competitors in China, including many major Chinese technology companies like Baidu, Alibaba, and Huawei releasing their own AI chips that are more specialized to specific applications. But at least for the time being, for all of China's progress and some amount of hype and bluster about being a superpower or intending to lead the world in AI, there is still a significant dependency upon this U.S. hardware, which is why, as we were discussing, this drive for indigenous innovation and independence in semiconductors has been such a core objective for China, albeit one with mixed success, though, of course, with the some of the potential for disruption in, in the industry, whether that's new kinds of chips, perhaps new materials, new techniques for manufacturing, it could could remain more dynamic in the years to come. So there's a it, 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 your your report had a couple of sentences in it which said that the U.S. government had effectively crippled one Chinese champion in the hardware area, Fujian Jinhua, uh, and I wondered um, how that happened and whether that was an example of fine-tuned and crafty uh, uh, industrial policy or just dumb luck on the part of the United States. Uh, sure. So I think this case, as well as a number of other examples of Chinese companies being subject to U.S. sanctions or legal measures, including through being added to the entity list, really has illustrated the amount of leverage and potential coercive capacity, so to speak, that the U.S. government can exercise, given that even some of China's foremost champions have been dependent upon imported materials and components that they're often receiving from American companies. Is that what happened to Fujian? Uh, they, they were the subject of a uh, targeted uh, do not export to this company uh, order? So they actually were subject to criminal charges. And this was, I believe, late 2018 initially. So the case was a while back, but they had actually been allegedly guilty of IP theft targeting Micron via UMC, a Taiwanese chip maker. And... Uh-huh. The criminal charges uh, resulted in some of the sanctions and restrictions put in place against them. And yeah, this was certainly a case that was typical in the sense that there have been multiple instances of alleged expropriation of intellectual property by Chinese companies, particularly in in this industry, targeting semiconductors, given that this has been been a weakness and to the extent that a number of Chinese companies, whether because of criminal actions under or criminal sanctions against them or their addition to the entity list in other cases due to human rights concerns, these measures have, have really caused them at least initially to stumble. And Huawei is another interesting example here, though they appear to be uh, recovering somewhat. And I think one of the problems in across a couple of these cases has been I think the lack of a the lack of strategic foresight when it comes to clarity and consistency and the rationale for these kinds of measures, as well as thinking through the second order effects, as I was mentioning, in terms of American companies that are often hit with collateral damage when they are at least for the time being dependent upon markets and customers in China. So I hope that we can see, I think that some of these measures do illustrate that the U.S. government has this leverage when it chooses to use it. 
And I hope that we will see a refinement of these tools and more targeted measures. Uh, just give a shout out to some of my colleagues from the Center for Security and Emerging Technology who will have a report forthcoming and have had a couple of policy briefs out on potential export controls and a more targeted approach to thinking strategically about semiconductors as a sector. So this is so some of, some of the issues in play are a bit beyond my primary expertise, but I think it is it is absolutely fascinating to see how this is playing out, and it does highlight uh, what is coming out some of the coming out of some of the academic literature has become an active policy debate on this notion of weaponized interdependence concept first introduced in an international security article that we are seeing play out very much in real time in the sector in terms of how how the degree to which there is this mutual dependence creates a level of mutual vulnerability that can that can come into play and we've seen this uh, exercised by the US against China and in some cases by China against the US potentially and I think it'll continue to be a core challenge when we think about this this juxtaposition of strategic competition with economic entanglement and technological entanglement so to speak when it comes to how closely some of these sectors have been integrated despite all of the all of the frictions playing out in the trade war and otherwise so you you suggest in this report that uh, um, China has actually had more AI or at least as much AI commercial success as um, uh, American companies America may have an R&;D lead but when it comes to commercializing AI uh, China's at least as successful is that uh, a fair uh, summary of what you what you concluded uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's become clear across a number of sectors and applications. And to some degree, that does come down to attitude and ecosystem. And what I mean by attitude is that there has been fairly an openness to adopting and even going full speed ahead on AI. A lot of enthusiasm about it, some of which is organic to China's tech sector, which is quite fiercely competitive and has moved very rapidly into a new digital economy. Think e-payment, uh, drone-based delivery, and cities that are more and more digital and aspects of day-to-day -day life. And some of this enthusiasm has extended to, to these applications that we're seeing play out in the Chinese economy, as well as applications like education, healthcare. And I know we were supposed to avoid discussing the coronavirus, but the use of AI to fight it, whether in terms of diagnosis or pandemic surveillance has also been an interesting element of of how we've seen Chinese companies stepping up and being enlisted by the Chinese government in in this fight, which Xi Jinping has called a people's warfare, sort of trying to leverage a whole of society mobilization. So there has been arguably a more rapid embrace of AI by the Chinese economy and society on some fronts that does reflect that for all that this is a national strategy, a priority highlighted by Chinese leaders at the highest levels, up to and including Xi Jinping himself. There also is a quite a strong market economy, albeit a hybrid hybrid uh, approach to that in some cases, where we're seeing technology companies like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, iFlytech, SenseTime, and a host of other members of the so-called national team that emerged as successful in their own right, but that are now being really 
invited by the government to contribute to national development objectives, including through these open innovation platforms that are concentrating on specific applications and trying to create new tools, platforms, and data sets that can really enrich the overall ecosystem of small and medium enterprises going forward. And I think this intense market competition, as well as a, to some degree, a societal acceptance of and some enthusiasm for AI, which in some cases is reinforced by state propaganda highlighting how AI will like make life better, is is also a striking contrast between the U.S. and China. Whereas here, I fear that sometimes our conversations default to the killer robots are coming to steal our jobs. Whereas, <laughs> which is not not how we should be thinking. There are there are risks. There is the potential for disruption, which I think does call into question how we think about the social safety net in our society and opportunities for retraining and how workers from the industries that will be disrupted by this will will manage and will be able to adapt going forward to new realities in our economy. But I think that the Chinese government uh, has had some success in policy, yet the commercial competition with the dynamism of these companies is also a really critical element of how this is taking shape on the ground. And somewhere between the ambition of declaring that China will lead the world in AI and the actual day-to-day efforts of these companies, we are seeing this take shape in ways that I think have significant implications for the long-term trajectory of U.S.-China economic competition. So don't you think, I mean, in, in, if, if, if this were just the Chinese government uh, betting its prestige or uh, concerned about military applications of AI and the, uh, the loss of the Go championship to, to AI uh, um, uh, machines, I, it might take a long time for China to achieve dominance. Uh, but if big, fairly market-oriented uh, uh, Chinese companies are making money on AI today, they're going to continue to invest in the same way and for the same reasons that uh, Google uh, and Facebook uh, are investing. Uh, And that means it's sort of hard to see how China, with 800 million users generating a better training data set than any other data set available in the world, uh, how they can fail to be at least uh, uh, permanent competitors and quite possibly dominant in AI. Absolutely. I do think that the vitality and strength of that overall ecosystem is an important dimension of this competition and also the cooperation, because for all that we talk so much about rivalry in AI, the reality is that there have continued to be a, there's continued to be a significant amount of academic collaboration when it comes to American and Chinese researchers working together. There has been cooperation among companies and universities, and this has been. Well, you wrote a, you wrote a whole report. report. You, you wrote a whole report on this, if I'm reading it right, on AI safety and security and how to work with Russia and China. Uh, and I guess my first question is, how did Russia sneak in there? They they have no economy, uh, and uh, uh, they have military ambitions for sure, and a lot of really smart uh, uh, people, but they're just not likely to be in this race for the long haul, are they? 
So I guess I'd say that, so looking back again for one, one last moment at the first report, I would say that we, we struggled throughout it to articulate how do we think about what comparative advantage in AI means, or even how we define and articulate different elements of leadership. And I think it really depends on how you break it down and how you think about what we consider the primary metrics of success and advancement. And it does become more complicated. So even to go back for a moment, you'd mentioned the question of how much data China has. And certainly that is very true when we think about the commercial dimension of of competition or of the question of comparative advantage. But when we think about the Chinese military, their own efforts to develop defense big data and make sure that their data is available to be leveraged for military-specific applications of AI, that is a whole nother story and a whole nother question and challenge. So I think when we look across this landscape, there are, of course, some synergies, but also differences when we think about economic competition relative to the military potential of artificial intelligence. And Russia is actually appears to be in a rather interesting position on that front. And of course, this uh, second report, which I worked on with my colleague, Andrew Embry, looked at the, really the question of, if we are in a world of great power rivalry, which is how the US national defense strategy has defined the status quo character of our geopolitics, then we have to think not only about competition, but also about some of the risks that come into play. And during the Cold War, there were intense concerns about this notion of strategic stability and how could we, while locked in this intense rivalry with a potential adversary, also mitigate the risks of of an accident, of unintended escalation. And if you think back at moments like the Cuban Missile Crisis or the 1983 incident where Stanislav Petrov saved the world because he did not listen to the computer telling him an American nuclear attack was was imminent, then you do realize just how how fraught and precarious this notion of stability in our geopolitics can be. And Russia is one of the few great power militaries that is actually fighting today and learning from fighting with its uh, battlefield laboratories in recent history in Syria, as well as Ukraine in the past, and experimenting with drones on the battlefield, with apparently some early applications of AI and electronic warfare, and also collecting a fair amount of data about U.S. military systems. And uh, my colleague Sam Bendet has done some really great work on Russian military advances in AI, so I would defer to his expertise on these fronts, but I think it suffices to say that Russia, in part because of its economic weaknesses, as well as the past atrophying of its military capabilities, has been looking with some amount of desperation in some cases for new sources of potential advantage and a rather forward-leaning approach to adopting these new capabilities and pivoting so let me towards push you on let me let me push you on the the Russians. I, you're right; they've been fighting wars, and that's where you gather data. And they do have the uh, the advantage of having that data, just as we have a lot of data from fighting wars. Uh, uh, your paper uh, goes out of its way to say, "Oh, we should engage with uh, our near peers uh, on AI to make sure that we come up with AI that is good at avoiding civilian harms and only choosing military topic the targets." What, what, 
Russian war have you been watching? I, it, there, there is no Russian war in the last 40 years that has been avoiding civilian harm uh, and only using military targets. And I think they think that's a an advantage they have. Uh, why would we expect them to be interested in anything other than trying to train our AI to be less good at fighting the kind of war that they fight every time they, they go to war? So clearly the Russian military has been complicit in serious war crimes and has had a quite indiscriminate approach to war fighting in ways that do raise these major concerns about human rights and questions about whether the Russian military would adhere to any ethical commitments. I d- certainly, I don't dispute that. And I think this is something where we should continue to condemn Russia when they are guilty of causing civilian casualties. And Yeah, but the condemnations don't, those condemnations don't stand up uh, against their victories, right? They have won these wars using these tactics. And, and, and so for your report to suggest, uh, well, we ought to engage with them on how to make a kinder, gentler AI war machine uh, does not respond to anything that they see in the, as in their self-interest unless it's about unilaterally disabling our capabilities. So why would we expect them to think that was a valuable exercise? So I would challenge or complicate the notion that Russia has achieved victory because I think their degree of their success does depend upon whether we're thinking tactically at the campaign level or strategically in terms of the long-term ramifications of these operations. And I think it is far from clear given some of the costs and casualties to them, though, of course, I'll defer to experts who have studied these recent conflicts more carefully. I do think that what we we try to take a very pragmatic approach in the report and not saying per se that we should that we believe our competitors, even potential adversaries, will care about ethics, but rather to think about as professional militaries that have some sense of professionalism, how do we think about the mitigation of risks in cases where the consequences could be mutual and potentially quite grave? And what I mean by that is, again, I would defer to experts on the Russian military, but By my understanding, most professional militaries want to have weapon systems that are controllable, where they have some sense that it will perform as expected. Of course, if for Russia, a lack of attention to civilian casualties is a feature of how they fight, then they will have different specifications in mind. But I think think for any military, being able to ensure at least that weapons they are using do not cause damage to their own troops or do not result in unpredictable outcomes on the battlefield is is an important element of how militaries operate. Of course, this case is very different if we're thinking about scenarios where non-state actors are absolutely indiscriminate in how they operate. But I do think that despite these ethical asymmetries, there still is space to talk, as we did during the Cold War, about where we see risks that are shared and a sense of threat that We don't want to end up in a crisis that could be exacerbated by the malfunctioning of a potentially autonomous weapon system that could risk the worst case scenario of a great power conflict, whether that is the accidental shoot down, as we've seen in several recent cases of another nation's military or civilian aircraft in cases where 
the level of automation or autonomy in the weapon system is a factor or accidents and misperceptions that could result from failures of early warning. Again, echoing back to the 1983 incident where the world very well could have ended if Russia decided to retaliate. So I think that it is important to keep in mind these these asymmetries and recognize that our potential adversaries may very well try to exploit them. So I'm I'm not optimistic on many fronts, but I try to be pragmatic about if we're thinking about the worst case scenarios and potential consequences that we want to avoid at all costs, then I think it is important to engage in a matter that is highly pragmatic and carefully calibrated with our competitors to better understand their approach and recognize that some of these misperceptions can be mutual. We're looking at each other through a glass darkly. We have different different concepts and our doctrine and our definitions of weapon systems. We have really the potential for quite severe consequences in some cases where we see these technological developments intersect with real world geopolitical frictions. And this uh, policy brief tried to be forward leaning and perhaps somewhat provocative in arguing that not only can we try to have these difficult conversations with our competitors, but actually it's essential as we're thinking about the degree to which AI has become a major element of this overall military competition, whether we're talking about even potentially the incorporation of AI or ML into nuclear systems in some capacity, as Russia has indicated they are considering. And certainly our our potential adversaries also fear, fear our intentions and capabilities, and there can be a lot of noise and a lot of mutual anxiety that can drive arms racing scenarios when there is a fear of disadvantage or fear of a gap between different militaries in terms of aggregate capabilities. So, yeah. So I, 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 I agree. It's probably worth talking to them, but just so that when we point out uh, uh, all of the massive uh, collateral damage from everything from their shoot down of civilian airliners to uh, the spread of not, Petya, we can hear them say, uh, is not bug, is feature. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, I do not have high hopes for that. Uh, and, uh, and so I was sort of disappointed to see that uh, as, a, as a major theme. But uh, it's, it, it, is, it continues to be an impressive body of work, Elsa, uh, and um, uh, at an age when most people are still uh, trying to finish their PhD dissertation, you have an entire uh, uh, oeuvre uh, uh, on these topics, and it's uh, uh, it's always a pleasure to hear you talk about them. Uh, so thanks to Elsa Kanya. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Maury Shank and Mark McCarthy and Nick Weaver for the news roundup. This has been episode 306 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. If you want to hear the uh, interviews broken out from the, um, the news roundup uh, uh, then you need to vote for that position if you like them uh, tied together uh, uh, please vote that way uh, so that we know how we should be uh, handling these in the future uh, you vote at steptoe.com slash 
podcast poll, all one word, open through the end of March. Uh, if you've got other, got other comments or guests you think we ought to have on, send those uh, uh, suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Uh, leave us a rating uh, or a review. I know we've got, had a review or two recently. I'll read them, uh, uh, at least the entertainingly abusive ones, uh, uh, when uh, uh, we get a chance. And uh, please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.